Okay. Good evening, everybody. A uh, very special thank you to the Greenwald Mishpacha for sponsoring tonight's class. Uh, they are sponsoring in honor of Mrs. Greenwald's mother's second yard site, Leah Bas Dove Bear, which will be taking place the 15th of Cheshvan. Mm-hmm. And also in honor of a cousin of the Mishpacha, Mordechai ben Yitzchak Hanach, whose yard site is actually this evening. So both of their Halig and the Shamas, Mrs. Greenwald's mother, Leah Bas Dove Bear, and Mordechai ben Yitzchak Hanach, they should have an Aliyah through our Limit HaTorah and through the general uh, continued growth of the Greenwald family. Special thank you, as always, to Isaac for all of his Mesiris Nefesh and creativity and love and energy, getting this shear off the ground. And a special thank you to Tor Anytime for sharing this particular class with people who cannot be here this evening. You have brains in your head, you have feet in your shoes, you can steer yourself any direction you choose. You're on your own, and you know what you know, and you are the one who will decide where to go. Oh, the places you'll go. There's fun to be done. There are points to be scored. There are games to be won. And the magical things you can do with that ball will make you the winningest winner of all. Fame, you'll be famous, as famous as can be, with everyone watching you win on TV, except when they don't, because sometimes they won't. So this is from Dr. Seuss, Oh, the Places You'll Go. Uh, 1990, when the book came out, actually his last published book during his lifetime, it reached number one on the New York Times best-selling fiction hardcover list. And this same book is given out. It's a popular graduation present for kids graduating kindergarten all the way through college. Um, The National Education Association listed the book as one of the teacher's top 100 books they enjoy reading to children. So there's obviously a lot to be gained from this uh, particular Dr. Seuss book. Wonderful message of independence, of autonomy, of being able to go into life taking responsibility and ownership for your choices, no longer just the product of your environment, which is very much the theme or has been the theme of the 21st century. At the same time, there's this uh, undercurrent of the message that we've heard often, be true to yourself. You can do it. You will determine your destiny. You can take yourself in any direction you'd like to go. And it's empowering. It's a message we need to hear. But it could also be crippling. It could present an image of life where I am the center of my universe and it's not about changing or tweaking or refining Midos as much as it is finding my way, discovering who I really am. Now it's true, Rabbi Yisrael Salanter said that the three words, Da Es Atzmacha, know thyself. Those are fundamental words within the, uh, the hashkafa, the Torah lexicon. We have to know ourselves before achieving anything real and lasting. But from the, the Torah hashkafa, it's not so much about be true to yourself as much as it is bringing yourself closer to truth. And that's not just a word game. 
But that's a massive distinction in how we view ourselves and how we view the world around us. And I think this is a, a microcosm, a little bit of a, a snippet of perhaps the secular mindset of creating the you, in all capitals, as the, the center of your universe. It's all about the discovery, the, the self-aggrandization, um, and perhaps not as much about changing or having some level of humility, being able to say, I don't know, or I'm not there yet, but I'd like to be there. This is a difficult, uh, it's a difficult struggle. This struggle happens to go back thousands of years. We know many of us heard the, the particular Chazal back in kindergarten of the brother of Avram, Haran, who was sitting there watching Avram go through this crazy traumatic ordeal. We know the story of Avram breaking his father's idols and then his dad being very upset with his young chutzpahdik boy. He says, I'm going to take you to Nimrod. And Nimrod was the, the ruler of the known world at the time. He takes them there and they have this whole back and forth. Avram is trying to convey the message that Avodah Zarah is silly, that your whole way of life, your religion, your theology doesn't make any sense. Nimrod is frustrated, so he says, you know what, I've had enough of this conversation. I'm going to throw you in the fire and we'll see if your God wants to come and save you. So that's what happens. Throws him in the fire and the whole time the Chazal tell us, that Horon was standing there, polug, which means he was divided. He wasn't sure. What was his dilemma? Amar, he said, Let me see what happens. If Avram wins, then I'll say that I'm on Avram's team. And if Nimrod wins, then... Then I'll be able to say that I'm a Nimrod's team. As we know, Avram is thrown into the fire and he's unscathed. He walks out miraculously. Then suddenly they turn to Hard and says, Okay, you're his brother. What team are you on? And at that point, he says in confidence, I'm together with Avram. They throw him into the fire and we know the tragic end of the story that he dies. Now, it's interesting when Chazal speak about the death of Haran, it's usually in a, in a somewhat negative way. Right? Haran didn't have that much amuna. He was waiting on the sidelines. He was waiting to see what Avram would do and if Hashem would perform a miracle. And only then he was able to say, you know what? I'm together with my brother Avram. So because he didn't really believe, that's why he wasn't Zohar to a miracle. He didn't deserve to be saved in a supernatural way. Now, it's a little bit strange because, just to give him some credit, maybe he wasn't on the same caliber, that same iron-clad bitachon that his brother had, but he was still willing to be thrown into the fire. Why is that different than any other Jew throughout history who's been willing to give up their life for the sake of uh, Kavod Shemayim? You could argue, well, in this case, he only was willing to do it because he thought he would survive. And that's true. But even if you think you're going to survive, 
it's still a pretty scary thing to be thrown into a fiery furnace. Right? It's not something we would choose to do for fun. So Shalom Shadron was bothered by the question, granted he didn't deserve a miracle like his brother, but why is he always spoken about it in somewhat of a negative way? So Shalom Shadron makes the following diuk. He points out the particular words of this Chazal, and they're very powerful. Chazal don't tell us that Haran wasn't sure, and he was deciding to see which mahalach, which path in life, made more sense. But rather, when we read it carefully, it says he was plug, he was um, divided. Amar, and he said, if Avram wins, if he's okay and he's saved, not then I will believe more in the God of Avram. Then I will feel more of a conviction to follow my brother's hashkafa sachayim. But rather, he says, Ana Amar mind Avramana. Oh, if Avram is good, then I'm going to say I'm on his team. And if Avram doesn't come out okay and he's burned to death, then on a Amar, then I'm going to say I'm on Nimrod's team. But he had no real motivation. He had no real thought of actually changing. It was how do I get out of this in the most beneficial way? How can I be on the winning team? Let me see where the wind blows me. And that explains with Shalosh Hadron, he says, when it comes to Amuna, there are infinite levels of Amuna, like we spoke about on the Sunday morning shir. And it could be that he was far away from Avram Avinu, but what he was doing was something very different than just lacking a darga, lacking a level of faith. He was using it as a sport. He was using his verbal conviction more to put himself in the right place to use it as a strategy for where can I be best suited? Where can I gain the most out of my, my decision? That said HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that's nothing. Amuna is not a sport. And that's why they speak about Har in a negative way. So much of the time, when we're trying to make big decisions or smaller decisions, it's not really about asking ourselves honestly, what's the right way to live? But sometimes the question is more, what's the right way to be perceived? Or it may not be as much of, what's really the best thing for my child? But it's more about, how will they look at us if we make this decision? So the, the Ana Amar, this uh, approach of Haram, waiting on the sidelines, just trying to strategize what makes the most sense for me to get myself in the best position without really being a, a truth seeker, without trying to discover the emis within or without. So that's something HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, we're missing the boat. Life is not about positioning ourselves in the, in the best possible way to hopefully achieve the most prestige. It's about searching for truth in a very real and honest way. Naturally, we think or we feel that when people like us, that's an indication that we're doing something right. The truth is, it's probably more of an indication, not when people like us, but when they like themselves because of us. That's a pretty good indication to doing something right. 
We live in a world, though, where it's an amar. I just have to make sure that I'm perceived in this particular way, and then I'm okay. I want to share with you, uh, this is part of David Brooks. He has a book, The Road to Character, where he speaks about many interesting studies, but he speaks about in his, uh, his assessment kind of the, the issue, the struggle that we're going through in the last 20 years or so. He writes, any hyper-competitive system built upon merit is going to encourage people to think a lot about themselves and the cultivation of their own skills. Subtly, softly, and pervasively, this system instills a certain utilitarian calculus in all of us, meaning to say that each acquaintance becomes an opportunity to advance your status and professional life project. Even in our free time, it's not so much about I want to hang out with you because we're friends and I'm, I'm longing for that connection, but part of me, at least in the back of my head, I'm thinking this could be useful to get me to the next step. We're all together at the Kiddush or at the business meeting. What's pushing me more in this direction to have a conversation with these people than in this direction to have a conversation with those people? Oftentimes, if we dig deep within us, it comes down to the question of, who am I gaining more from? Who will bring me to that place where I'm going to feel better about myself? He writes, I think, uh, very, uh, very meaningfully that the word character, which is not used that much anymore, but he said the word character has changed. It's used less to describe traits like selflessness, generosity, self-sacrifice, and other qualities that sometimes make worldly, worldly success less likely. And instead, it's used to describe traits like self-control, grit, resilience, tenacities, qualities that make worldly success more likely. So even when we speak about character, even when we talk about the tikkun hamidos, oftentimes we're focused on perseverance, on all of the things that can at least potentially bring success in how we in Olam Hazav view success. But the other midos that we learn about, of being able to be mevater, giving something up for somebody else, living in a selfless way, those particular midos are not spoken about as much. In the culture we live in, he says, the big me is promoted. Puff yourself out. Be completely sure of yourself. Believe that you deserve a lot more than you have. Assert and advertise yourself. Display and exaggerate your achievements. The achievement machine rewards you if you can demonstrate superiority. It's all about me showing you that I'm slightly better. Me showing the world that I have something that other people don't have. And then he says, this is called the shrewd animal. The shrewd animal has streamlined his inner humanity to make his ascent more aerodynamic. It is this person, opportunity, or experience. How can I use it to benefit me? How can I use them to get myself to a better place, to feel more comfortable? And he concludes here that we learn how to do things that will propel us to the top, but we're never encouraged to ask ourselves the question, why are we going there? Why are we trying to achieve it? 
The culture encourages people to become praise-seeking machines, to measure their lives based on external praise. If people like you and accord you status, then you must be doing something right. Uh, oftentimes in the medical world, we hear the, uh, the phrase quality of life. And sometimes it's overused or perhaps abused to actually encourage a family to, to stop a life. But you don't have that phrase that often, quality of life or the equivalent, in Torah Hashkafa. We have something else. We have Kedusha Sechayim, which means the sanctity of life. Quality of life is very much the focus on if I'm not living in a state of comfort that I want, then it could very well be that life is not worth living. If I have to go through pain, and I don't want to speak about chas you know, terrible terminal illness and those questions, but the general philosophy, the, the, the perception of quality of life is very much focused on what am I getting from life and therefore is it worth it to keep on living in contrast to Kedusha Sechayim. Kedusha Sechayim is much more, life is holy, life is sanctified. I have so much to give, I have so much to contribute. It's not about the consumption, it's about the contribution. But living in a world where it's more about the consumption, it's so easy to get lost. The Satmarov was, uh, was known for his brilliance, he was known for his compassion, he was known for his very, uh, very strong personality. Uh, towards the end of his life, he was at a wedding where there was a barchan, there was a comedian. And uh, one of his tricks, he was actually trying to act just like the Satmarov, with the same walk and the same way of speaking and the mannerisms and the, the hand movements. And it was so good. And everyone was looking and they were laughing and they were appreciating it. It was all done with Tuvtam Vadas in a very respectful way. But the Badchen, the comedian, looks over at the Satmarov and he sees that he's getting teary-eyed. And a tear goes down his cheek. So he quickly concludes the skit. He runs over to the, the Sadmirov and he starts begging forgiveness. Please, Rebbe, I feel terrible. I wasn't trying to make fun of the Rebbe at all. I thought it was a cute shtick. It was a nice thing. I feel so bad that I made you feel bad. The Sadmirov said back, God forbid. I wasn't, I wasn't getting emotional because I, I was taking it personally. Trust me, I wasn't taking it personally. But you got me thinking, you were so good at pretending to be me, I started asking myself, maybe I'm also pretending to be me. If he could do it, maybe I could do it. So living in a world where it's about the external prestige, the perception, the facade, it's about Anna Amar, what I could say to place myself in the right place with the right people in the right group, and not as much about how am I living what am I really striving for? Am I being honest and sincere in my relationships? Do I really care about my child or am I being pulled in many different directions with different calculations that have nothing to do with my child? Why do we want so much? Why do we want so much for ourselves? Why does that play such a role consciously or at least subconsciously in our lives? And is there a way to stop wanting so much? 
to be mistapik bechelko, to feel a sense of serenity, to feel I have what I need? Or is it just part of the human condition? This is how Kaddish Baruch made us. I want to share with you, there's a letter from the stipler. And this is actually in his Sefer, the Chayolam, where he speaks about this particular quality of human nature. He says, We're always feeling, naturally, that we're lacking something. I feel that my status has been diminished. I'm deserving more than I'm actually getting. But that even once I work my way up the corporate ladder in whatever my, my field of, of desire is, and I'm getting more recognition or I'm getting more appreciation, somehow instead of quenching my thirst, that only enhances my thirst. Yigdal tzimono liskabe lisader. In a sense, the more we have, the more we consume. The more we consume, then the more we need. And the more we need, that means the less we have. So where does this whole cycle come from? Why do we want so much, and therefore why do we feel that we're constantly lacking? The analogy the stipler gives is someone who's extremely thirsty, and all you have to drink is salt water. Speaking of drinking, I take a quick sip of the seltzer. My three-year-old daughter loves seltzer. That's her drink of choice, which I guess is better than soda. But she'll walk around the house. We have to hide them from her now. She'll have two cans with two straws, drinking two at the same time. So I asked her yesterday, which one do you like better? You know, one was, uh, they have cool flavors now, right? Very interesting, intriguing flavors. It was uh, strawberry and something, and watermelon and, and uh, cucumber. And her answer was, I like them both together, only together. But the, the analogy the stipler gives is, if we're thirsty and we drink salt water, it might feel like it's quenching our thirst in the moment, but ultimately, I'm going to be a lot more thirsty afterwards. That's really our experience in this world. So now he has the philosophical question of the evening, which is, this is the double underlined part on page four. Let's think about this for a second. Why would a Kaddish Baruch Hu implant within us this, this yearning, this thirst for, for so much that we can't have, and the more we have, the more we want? where it's very difficult just to achieve a sense of tranquility. We're always wanting more. So the simple answer to this question would be, this is the Nisayon of life. This is the challenge of this world. But the stipuler really takes it one step deeper. He says, everything that we find in creation, everything we have within the human being, it's all b'chachma. Right? There is intricate, infinite wisdom within every cell of the human being, and everything serves a purpose, has its own function. In which case, why do we have this tzimon, why do we have this thirst? If anything, it just distracts us and makes life harder. So he says as follows. Koach tzimon hagodol nitein bekirbo. The reason why HaKadosh Baruch Hu created this, this unquenchable desire within us is an order that we're propelled, that we're, we're driven constantly to attach ourselves to Hashem. 
Laman Yosef omits Bavadasa Yisbarach Shmo to be able to climb closer and attach ourselves to a Kaddish Baruch Hu. So we have to have this drive, we have to have this taiva, we have to have this thirst. So to ask the question, how can we stop wanting more? The answer is, we can't stop wanting more. That's who we are. That's the very nature. That's the DNA of the neshama. HaKadosh Baruch Hu created a human being with a constant she'ifa, with this ambition, with this limitless reservoir of desire to keep on climbing. So we can't stop wanting more. But says the stifler, the one thing we have control over is, what do we want? So if we allow ourselves to fall into the consumer mindset, where pretty much I'm here for a short time, I want to maximize my pleasure and my accomplishments, I want to get the prestige and the appreciation as much as possible. So I'm taking that desire and I'm, I'm throwing it towards that mayim maluchim, the salt water, where I'm never going to feel svia. I'm never living, he says, kedei svia to the point where I'm actually satisfied. We do have the bechira though, we have the ability to channel that same desire towards ruchnius. Now, ruchnis is a very vague word, but if we were to bring it down a couple of levels, if we channel that same desire towards somebody else or something bigger than myself, then we don't fall into that trap of mayim maluchim. Because then I'm going to keep on wanting more, but everything I accomplish doesn't make me feel like I'm lacking more than I had previously. It brings a deep sense of simcha. Otherwise, says the stifler, I'm living with a feeling of emptiness. I'm living with a sense of void. He goes on this in the very next chapter of the Chai Olam, and I think this we could all relate to as we're coming up on the elections. He says sometimes people lose their, uh, their agenda for themselves. They realize, you know what? I might not be world famous. It might not happen. But I can't let go of that, of that hunger in general, and therefore, I attach myself to a movement or to a political party. He says, in the olden days, people used to get into philosophy, and there were intellectual conversations and philosophical you know, problems that would be debated. Nowadays, we're not so into that. But instead, he says, we could attach ourselves to a movement, to a revolution, to a sports team, and even though it sounds trivial, but it's really tapping into this very deep-seated human need of climbing, of coming closer, of wanting more. I can't do it for myself alone, but at least I'm part of something greater. And he says, You get so entrenched, you get so into your little group to the point that that anyone who disagrees with your ideology, with your political stance, with your philosophy, he doesn't deserve to live. And we see it all the time, every day, any talk show conversation. We get so entrenched in our view. Where does that come from? Where does the passion come from? Where does the fire come from? Especially when really we know there's so much we don't know about every topic we speak with confidence on. But it comes from this, this, this burning desire. I want to be part of something bigger. So we attach ourselves to something, to anything. Now recently, although this has been uh, an issue we've been struggling with for 
thousands of years. There's a study out of UCLA that shows over the last five decades there's really been a shift uh, in interviewing young boys and girls in the adolescent years and asking them on a scale of 1 through 16, listing different values as to what did they want most out of life. So for 40 years or so, until about 2007, this study took place in 1967, that's when it began. And on the, the list of 16 different values, community and friendship, those were always the top one or two. Kindness, compassion, those were up there as well. 2007, they saw a very stark change where fame, which was actually 15 or 16 for many decades, 2007 suddenly climbed up to number one. To the point where you could ask a little boy in the uh, 1990s, so what do you want to do when you grow up? And he would answer, I want to be a basketball player. I want to be a fireman. And a little girl would say, I want to be a teacher. I want to be a lawyer. I want to be a mommy. Nowadays, you ask a boy, what do you want to do when you grow up? The answer could be, I don't really care as long as you know who I am. Right? As, long as, as long as I become famous in some way. So the same struggle we've been having for centuries has really uh, only exacerbated during the last couple of decades. Now, one potential approach would be we have to somehow seclude ourselves. We can't get trapped in all of this, this mindless, you know, running after fame and fortune. Let's just live in, in, in isolation. We could do that theoretically. I don't have to be connected to people. We could live the, uh, the Simon and Garfunkel song, you know, I am a rock, I am an island. I do my own thing and nobody touches me. I don't feel pain. And the truth is that Yisrael Salanter actually had this idea about himself. He was very influenced. His great Rebbe was Rav Zundel Misalant. And Rav Zundel was a nister. He was someone who kept very much to himself. And people did not realize his level of righteousness, his level of brilliance. And when Yisrael was younger, he had in mind to follow in the ways of his great Rebbe. And he would do the same thing. Because he felt that the ultimate way of clinging to spirituality is not to get lost in the outside world where we could be distracted and, uh, and strive for things that are not so meaningful. But then he came to the conclusion, he said, I thought about it long and hard. I was, I was ba'amkus in depth, analyzing what my future should be. And I came to the conclusion that Kodesh Baruch Hu gave me unique abilities. And I feel that I now have the responsibility to share with the world whatever I'm able to. And if I could influence people in a positive direction, for me to be sitting in my corner on the sidelines, not participating, that's probably not what a Kodesh Baruch Hu wants. And it's true, I might reach higher levels of meditation and, and spirituality, and I'm not going to have to go through all of the, the hassle and the hardship of dealing with people and the stubbornness and the people being defensive. Trying to create any revolution is extremely difficult. But he came to that conclusion that I'm not allowed to. This is not what a Kodesh Baruch Hu wants from us. We're not allowed to sit isolated by ourselves. We need to interact with people. The Kedusha Sachayim, not the quality of life necessarily, but the Kedusha Sachayim, the sanctity of life, 
is only through us being able to give to others. If we run away from society, if we hide from civilization, we might be more protected, we might have stronger, more fortified walls, but we're not going to actually have a hashpah to influence people and to uplift people. And therefore he felt, I have to do this. Now it's interesting because in the beginning of the Parsha, everyone knows the famous Rashi that says, HaKadosh Baruch Hu promised Avram three things. Because usually when you're traveling, it's hard to have children, and having any level of wealth, financial security, is extremely difficult. And shame. What does shame mean? People knowing about you. How do you ever set up shop? How do you create some level of momentum? You're constantly traveling. No one's going to know that you exist. And therefore, the three blessings that Hashem gave Avram was, I will allow you to be fruitful and multiply. I will give you the wealth that you need. And I will give you shame. I will make sure that people know about you, that you're famous, that you have recognition. Why in the world would Avram care if people knew about him? Right? He was a walking giant of a man. He was a spiritual giant. Well, people, are, I'm not going to have as many views. I'm not going to have as many likes. I'm traveling from place to place. How are people going to know about me? So Hashem says, don't worry. I'll make sure you're famous. So Rabbi Aaron David Goldberg, he's the, the Rosh Hashivan, tells, he has a beautiful commentary on the Shari Avodah from their Ben Yonah. And he addresses this question, he says, quite simply, the reason why Avram cared about people knowing about him is because in order for me to do my job, which is to actually connect and relate to other human beings, they have to know I exist. And if I'm traveling from place to place, I'm living this nomadic lifestyle, I'm not going to be able to do my job. Avram said, don't worry. I'm going to give you the recognition so you can fulfill your tafkid. You could help others. So the reason why it is so incredibly complex is because we can't take the opposite extreme. Sometimes in life when we have a challenge, we could just run the other way. Where I'm going to hide in my corner and no one will ever know about me. And therefore I don't have to be tempted and distracted by all of the other forces out there. But we see from Avram Avina, we see from Rabbi Yisrael Salanter, that's not really an option. We need to get ourselves out there. If it's in the world of Parnassa, we, we have to advertise. We have to make sure people know that I'm here. If you're looking for a home, I, I want to make sure you're considering me. Right? I'm a good guy. I'll get you a good deal. But you have to know I exist to give me a call. And that's true in any area, in any field. So we can't go to the other extreme and in order to have any level of hashpa in the world, we need to be somewhat of somewhat interacting with the world. Right? There was some gedolim in Europe who were of the opinion that when Jews would come to America, although obviously we look different and we have a unique garb, it shouldn't be unique to the point where no one will ever speak to you. And likely you'll never speak to anybody else because then you're, you're crippling your ability to actually have a connection on some level and to be mashpia and to influence others. So the reason why it's so incredibly complex is because we can't go to the other extreme. We can't hide. We have to be there in the real world but somehow have the right intentions in getting ourselves out there. 
not as a consumer, but as a contributor. I want to end with uh, a piece from Ibn Breslov. And I think this as just a practical way of, of staying focused. You know, it's, it's a balance, it's a gesher tsar ma'od in everything we do in life. And to have the right intent and the right motivation, it requires a constant hisbodidus. Hisbodidus is a theme that's spoken a lot uh, often in the writings of Rav Nachman Breslov. And here in this particular teaching, he gives us kind of the uh, Hisbodidus 101. I'm just curious, by a show of hands, who here has heard the concept of Hisbodidus? Who here has practiced Hisbodidus? Pretty good. Who here practices Hisbodidus consistently? That knocked everybody out. The truth is, right, there are many different paths in the, in the Vodas Hashem. We spoke a while back about the Musr meditation, Musr Behispailus, the innovation of Rabbi Yisrael Salanter. And this is a very similar idea. There are definitely nuances. But I want to share with you the, the basic picture of his Bodidus and how I think in this particular struggle of staying focused as a contributor in contrast to a consumer, his Bodidus can be extremely helpful. He writes that his bodidus humayla el yonu gedola min hakol. This is one of the most crucial things in our avodas Hashem. Dehainu likboa lo al kolponem sha o yoser lehisbode levado beeza cheder o besada to set aside at least an hour or more a day in a particular room or out in the field or the forest, and to do what? and to speak directly to the Kaddish Baruch Hu. If there are tainas, if there are complaints, if there are issues, if there are relationships that are weighing us down, express everything. Pour out your heart to the Kaddish Baruch Hu. And to ask, to beseech, to pray, to ask Hashem to please bring me closer to, to your avoda, be'emis, which means in truth, in sincerity. Right? There's so many things we daven for, but how often do we daven that, Hashem, please give me more emunah and bitachon. Please allow me to deal with the struggles of life in a more reasonable way. Please bring me closer in my avodas Hashem that my tefillah can be more meaningful and that I can serve as a source of inspiration for those around me. Now, realistically, to set aside an hour or more a day, that's crazy. <laughs> okay, yeah. Unless you really have a lot of time on your hands, I can't imagine anyone having the ability to set aside an hour a day. But to make it at least user-friendly for us at this stage in life, a few minutes a day, where it's outside of the regular scheduled tefillah, it's not part of Shachar's Mincha Mariv, and it's just speaking to Hashem in our own words. The, the reason I think this is so important, and he'll explain more in a moment, is because when we get lost in the consumer mindset, what's really happening 
is we're losing touch of ourselves. And that fear the Satmarov had of acting like the Satmarov but, but not really being genuine, we could be living, impersonating ourselves for decades but not really being ourselves. Now the goal of life is not be true to yourself, but that's definitely a fundamental step to actually accomplish anything in the Vodas Hashem. I have to know myself. So by, by just being real and expressing what I'm feeling and what I'm wanting to Hashem, that brings me back to the state of, of hakara, to recognition that could burst the bubble of the world of uh, consumerism. He goes on to explain, he says, We read that. He says, this should not be in Hebrew. Unless your native language, your mamelashin, is Hebrew, otherwise it should be in the language you feel most comfortable in. Belashin Ashkenaz, right? He's living in a time and place where speaking Yiddish was their natural language. That's easier to feel the broken heart, to feel the actual emotion, because I'm saying words that I fully understand. So speak to Hashem in our own words. He says, however, although this might be an emotional hour, or at least in our world, an emotional five minutes, he says that needs to be in set times. He does say it should be daily, it should be consistent. But he advises, he cautions, Ushar hayom besimcha. But the rest of the day has to be besimcha. It's okay to be brokenhearted. And like we spoke about last week, Korov Hashem when we're actually broken and we're closer to Hashem than any other point in our life. But that's, that's for a you know, window open, window closed, and now Ibdus Hashem Besimcha, that should be the majority of my mindset. Then he has the following question. He says, What if I have nothing to talk about? I'm going to stand there and feel extremely awkward. I don't have my sitter in front of me. It's not classic davening for, for all the people I know and love and want refuos and, and, and yeshuos. I'm just supposed to be speaking to Hashem. I don't have what to say. So Rav Nachman writes, Afal pichain, Being in that state feeling awkward in front of Hashem, that's also very beneficial. The fact that I'm bringing myself to do something that I know can break mechitzos, that can bring me closer, and I know I want to speak, I want to pour out my heart, I'm just not feeling it right now. I'm not able to right now, either because I have too many other things in my mind, or just I'm not emotional, or perhaps I'm angry. It doesn't make a difference. The fact that I bring myself to the plate, and I take the bat, even if I can't hit at anything, but I'm stepping up at the plate. I'm, I'm showing myself and I'm showing HaKadosh Baruch Hu, I want to have this real, genuine relationship with you. when he concludes, if you have nothing else to speak about with Hashem, you can just scream out. And you could be mischane, you could pour out your lave and nefesh before Hashem, bemoaning the fact that I'm so removed from you. I can't even speak right now, but I want to come closer. 
We mentioned in the, in the Shabbos morning drasha that the most dangerous thing in our Vodas Hashem is not when we don't care, but it's when we stop caring that we don't care. So the fact that I can stand up before Hashem and say, I care, I, I want there to be this channel, I want there to be this Kesher Shel Kayama that I can't really feel, and maybe even sometimes I have a hard time believing it's there, but, but, but I'm demonstrating my Ratzel, this is what I want more than anything else. The shrewd animal is one where every decision, every interaction, my choice to speak to you versus you is all about how will this promote me? The Evid Hashem is really the exact opposite. What can I say to make you feel better? What can I say to encourage you? What can I say to show you that I'm there for you and I want to support you? And it's not about, are they going to like me? Are they going to have uh, the, the right view of me? But are they going to like themselves because of me? Then we know we're actually making a difference. We should be Zoha to have the clarity and the siyata deshmaya, the wisdom, not to fall prey to the society of consumption, but to constantly be focused on, contribu- on contributing to others and to the overall devotees Hashem. Shkoyach. That's that's incredible.